gospel reading is from John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had said these things, that he had said these things to her, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me add my greeting. It's great to be here with you um, more than you know. Last week, um, when I introduced myself and said a few words, I neglected to uh, let you know who's with me. And my wife is over here, uh, Maria, wave. And uh, our youngest son, David, um, is beside her. We have two older boys as well. One lives in the area, the other's in California in, uh, in college. And it's a thrill for our family to be a part of this little body. Uh, we, are, we are beyond joyful. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you before you leave today and uh, serve you in any way that I possibly can. So as we come to the gospel, let's pray and prepare our hearts to hear from God. Loving and merciful Lord. Shine your light into our minds and hearts and dispel the darkness. 
so that we may see you, be filled with inexpressible joy, and follow you faithfully all of our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, Easter is the day for you. It's the day for us. It's the day when life overcame death. Easter is the day where despair gave way to hope, where violence and hatred were rendered powerless by the irresistible force that is love. Resurrection Day is the day when light conquered darkness, where peace ascended to the throne. On Easter Sunday, your shame was replaced with grace and acceptance. Your sin lost its power. Your fears, all of them, were conquered by love. If you're lonely, misunderstood, homeless, wandering, confused, guilty, broken inside, successful on the outside but empty on the inside, Easter Sunday is the day that can and will give you everything you were made for in this life. Because Easter is the day when God overcame death just so He could hang out with us for eternity. And according to the Bible, the history of the world hinges on this day, on the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. What a fantastic, outrageous claim, isn't it? A lot of people can't quite fit something like that into their lives. Some of us can't get past the intellectual barriers that that presents to us. I mean, how can we really believe in a resurrection? And even if it did happen, how do we know that this guy, this single man, this ancient Jew, has anything to do with my modern life? It's hard, tough to get our minds around. Others of us ignore the resurrection because its message, its message of triumph, doesn't match with a life that is marked by struggle or tragedy. And maybe that's true for you today. Maybe it's illness or disease, isolation, rejection, alcoholism, some other addiction. Maybe the heavy and dark curtain of depression has lowered itself on your mind and you can't find your way through. And you feel very far from God or from any hope that anyone has to offer. How can an outrageous story like resurrection make a difference for someone like that? Maybe for you. Now, I don't want you to think that we're trying to sell you a product that will help you towards self-realization. Jesus is not a self-help strategy. What we want is that the living Savior, that this man, will run into you. That you'll have a powerful encounter that surprises you and that fills you with abundant life and inexpressible joy. That's what we want. The Apostle John writes the story in such a way that just can't help but draw us in. He begins with a nobody, Mary Magdalene. Mary arrives at the tomb before dawn on the first day of the week. 
The stone had been rolled away, no sign of the soldiers that were placed there to prevent the grave robbery, not uncommon in that day. So Mary concludes that Jesus' body had been stolen. Now we don't know if Mary went all the way into the tomb or not, but apparently she saw enough to conclude he wasn't there and had been taken. So in a panic, Mary rushes to find Peter and the other disciple, whom we believe to be John. Both Peter and John make a dash for the tomb. They run. I wonder why they would run. You ever thought about that? Now, if you had seen what Jesus endured in torture and crucifixion, would you run thinking that he was now alive? I don't think I would. People executed by crucifixion don't suddenly come back to life. And they had no reason to think that this guy would be the first. John even reminds us of that fact, that even when they got to the tomb, they still didn't clue into what was going on, because he said in verse 9, the two of them didn't understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Further, if he indeed had been taken, stolen, and wasn't at the tomb, well then why rush? Why run? The grave robbers were long gone. Logically then, they should just take their time, contemplate their next move. But they didn't. They ran. They ran because with Jesus, there's always hope of being surprised. And there still is, by the way. When they were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, none of them expected to see Jesus walking along the water in the middle of that storm. And in no way did they expect one of them, Peter, to be able to step out of the boat and do the same thing. When they ascended the mountain one day with Jesus, they didn't expect Moses and Elijah to appear and carry on a conversation with Jesus. All the while, watching him become brighter than the sun itself. Feeding 5,000 with a small lunch. Watching paralytics receive full strength in their legs. These guys had been trained to expect the unexpected with Jesus. And to hope for something even greater than they could imagine. Still, with all of those miracles and blessings, they didn't fully understand what they were about to witness. They couldn't get their heads around it. But they could hope for something. And so they ran toward Jesus. Maybe there's something there for us too. They arrive at the tomb. The other disciple, John, looks in. He sees the burial linens lying there, but he didn't enter. Peter arrives later and rushes into the tomb and witnesses something that caused them to form a different conclusion than Mary had. Mary thought he had been stolen. The disciples believed something else. One author points out that John includes an interesting detail in his account. He says, John says, the linens were lying there, but the cloth that was used to wrap Jesus' head, did you catch, catch this in the reading? It was separate. It was folded neatly by itself. And that was all the evidence that John needed to conclude that Mary had made a mistake. Isn't that interesting? Jesus wasn't stolen. Why? Because grave robbers wouldn't fold the clothes and leave them behind. 
Based on that, John says, he believed. What did he not say? He doesn't say, I can explain all of this to you. He doesn't say, I can get my head around this, and I understand everything Jesus has been saying, and now I fully understand the Old Testament. No, he doesn't offer a scientific or rationalistic proof for it. He simply says, it's not a robbery. And so even before he encountered Jesus himself, even before he laid eyes on him, he believed. He believed that he was alive again. Peter and John then left, went back to where they were staying. And then his narrative carries on with Mary Magdalene again. She stood outside the tomb weeping, still thinking the body had been stolen. She investigated the tomb and saw two angels sitting in there where Jesus had been. One of them asked why she was crying, and Mary said, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where they've put him. Anyone find it strange that she just doesn't panic and carries on a normal conversation with angels in a tomb? Do you carry on normal, calm conversations with angels? Yes, with my wife, said every husband. Every <laughs> of course it is. And the story gets crazier. Mary turns around sees a man whom she thinks is the gardener. How is the resurrected Lord of all glory mistaken for a gardener? I don't know. Why are you crying? And she tells him what the angels had said. Jesus says, Mary, at the word, he's recognized. The work in the beginning was the word. And when he speaks, your name, her name, our name. Our ears are opened. Our hearts respond. Mary. Rabboni. A term that means teacher, but carries a great sense of affection. More so than the standard rabbi. I find it an amazing story because of the way John communicates to us the central event of human history. There's nothing here that's eloquent or fantastic. It just includes everyday special characters. Nobody special. People like you and me. It's just a straightforward story about an average person with little understanding of what was happening. And that person witnessed seeing someone else. That's it. That's what he's told us. I can identify with them. I can identify with Mary and John and Peter, and maybe you can too. You may be unsure of what you know about Jesus, the facts, or even more unsure of what you think of Jesus. And like Mary and Peter and John, you may have questions that you can't answer. But I think if you listen long enough to this story, it might resonate more deeply than you first thought. It's interesting to me that Peter and John had essentially lived with Jesus for three years, had witnessed his miracles, heard all his teaching. Even when he explicitly said he would die and rise again the third day, and yet when it happened, they were very much caught off guard. 
Here were the men educated by the Son of God himself. Yet even for them, the resurrection caught them by surprise, and it just stretched their intellectual capacity. Resurrections aren't anything that anyone is ready for. What happened that morning on Sunday defies analysis or psychoanalysis. And when we read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, it's very clear that the followers of Jesus had no idea this was coming. So they offer no technical, complex, psychological explanation other than this is what we saw and we believe he has come back to life. Now that might be a hard pill to swallow for you. No matter if this is your first time hearing it, or maybe you've been hearing it all your life. Once someone said to me, I've been a Christian for many years now, attending church regularly, and it's like I just never quite get my head around the amazing reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. And I think that's true. Resurrections definitely catch us by surprise. There are many of you here who consider yourselves to be an intellectual. You're smart. You graduated from a prestigious university, or perhaps Oregon State. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was just to make sure you were awake. Everybody's fair game. I'll get to everybody eventually. Maybe you were top of your class. Or close to it. And you get a bit annoyed when the more ignorant around you fail to think clearly through arguments or fail to view the evidence correctly. That might be who you are. And so, resurrections are difficult. A difficult pill for you to swallow. They don't fit with the world that seems to be governed by scientific laws. But if God is God, and we are not, then it's at least within the realm of possibility that the human race doesn't know everything and that we might be confronted with a reality that forces us to change the way we understand the world. Is that possible? Well, it's happened. After Copernicus, we had to admit that the sun was the center of our galaxy. After Newton, we acknowledged the existence and impact of gravity. And we thought there were certain laws that governed everything and everyone equally. But then, a guy named Einstein came along, and his theory of relativity made us rethink Newtonian physics. And we had to rewrite the textbooks. And now, experiments like the Hadron Collider seem to be pushing us to the brink of new and revolutionary discoveries about our world. And the textbooks, again, will need to be rewritten. And when God breaks into our world through a power we haven't seen or understood before and does something as shattering as resurrection, then the intellectuals among us have a choice to make, don't we? Will I live according to the way I like to see the world? Or will I, like John, believe that this is a God who is full of surprises? And will I run? to see what he's going to do next. You may not be like the one with the intellectual struggles. Instead, you may 
be here and feel like you're the one on the margins. You're on the margins of society, of your family, of success. You're one of the ones who's forgotten. The story's for you too. John highlights Mary Magdalene. We don't know much about her other than before she started following Jesus, the scripture says she was possessed by seven devils. She may have been even worse off than that. I don't know. Besides, this is an ancient text, and she was a woman. And women, as many of you know in those days, were not credible witnesses in court. They couldn't testify. If you were looking for proof that Jesus is alive, you certainly wouldn't ask a mentally ill woman with a dodgy reputation. But right there, on Sunday morning, before he's even reunited with his 11 disciples, before even angels can spend time catching up with him, he appears to Mary. Confused and sorrowful as she is, when he calls out her name, clarity comes. You see, whether you're an educated intellectual with deep knowledge, or whether you're addicted to drugs, or your career, whether you're lonely, abused, forgotten, Jesus' resurrection is the startling reality that can and will change the course of your life and for the first time give you hope. Hope for this life and for the next. Most of us live in the comfortable middle class. When I walk into the gym in the morning, in the locker room, the TV is on Bloomberg or some news show like that. And as the men get dressed, they watch the stock market prices. We have nice portfolios, new cars, big houses, safe streets for the most part, and empty hearts. We have lots of knowledge, money, and seniority, but life isn't like we tend to portray it on social media, is it? All we really have to do, often, is just scratch beneath the surface a little bit. And we discover that there's some mess in our lives that we don't know what to do with. Nothing that you and I have access to in this world can handle all of that darkness. And maybe you don't have that struggle now because you're too young, but if you live long enough, it'll come. The only hope we have is in the surprise of a divine resurrection. That's it. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series, once called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. If there was anyone who was skeptical about God, it was he. He claimed to be an atheist for many years. One night he was out for a walk with his close friend and colleague, J.R.R. Tolkien, who challenged Lewis to consider the possibility that the story of Jesus Christ isn't just a myth that helps us cope with reality, but it just might be true. And Lewis immediately knew the implications of that. If it's true, if Jesus, the Son of God, really did rise from the dead, then there's no other path to take. No other story to follow, no other life to live, 
other than the one that is united to this man. Think about it. Here's a giant of an intellectual, a professor at Oxford University, who incidentally had suffered terrible tragedies in his short life already. And yet his life was radically changed by, of all things, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, an ancient male Jew. And you know what makes Lewis's legacy so powerful? It's not the stories or the literature he wrote. It was his life. He became a different person, a credible witness to the reality of God in the world. So what about us? What would keep us from believing in this risen Savior? Maybe this resurrection thing isn't just a nice story. Maybe it's actually true. Maybe Jesus isn't an aloof spiritual figure. But maybe he's real enough to come after the marginalized, the hurting, the broken in our world. And maybe he's still doing that today. If he is, if he's alive, and his story is true, what will you do? Will you run to him to see how he surprises you? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.